Yeah, can you hold on one second? Sure. Hey, Habby, you're hearing all my business. Alexa's like singing. I don't know. This house is crazy tonight. It's not even the dog. Tonight? I haven't heard her voice. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey there. Hi, everybody. Hi. Welcome. Uh, Welcome. It's the night before the election. Very exciting stuff. Are you excited? I am very concerned. Trisha. I'm not concerned at all. I think it's going to be a landslide. All right. Well, in which direction? (laughs) No, she's not saying. She's not saying. She just predicts it will be a landslide. End of story. Oh, boy. So, listener, by the time you hear this, it's probably all settled. So either we'll be coming back next week or we're out of the country. We're moving into resettlement camps because the three of us uh yeah we don't factor into one of their new world plans how you been what's going on well screw you two i want to tell you what's going on over here i have started cooking why (laughs) okay (laughs) what not to say when your friend tells you they've started cooking you didn't say like it's not like you said i started snorting coke you started cooking like what in the world? I feel like my side starts doing coke. I should be like, well, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but cooking, cooking. Why would you do that? You know, in the middle of the pandemic, there were very few things to do. I ran out of stuff to do. And I recalled our fabulous conversation with Lindsay and how exciting she made cooking sound. I thought she was crazy at the time, but I started it. I have an entire wall of recipes now. And so I cook. I, what I, what I want to know is, what is it that you quote? cook uh, okay unquote. are you ready are I'm, you ready i'm, I'm dying look, to know. you think you're setting me up to embarrass <laughs> I do. myself I do. are you ready okay the recipe I... said squirt the ketchup on the top of the french fries <laughs> <laughs> and these are my friends ladies and gentlemen do you hear this do you hear look at the trisha's head's thrown back and jason's just rolling around having the time okay okay let me know when you two are done God. Anyway, I thought you had a partner who cooked. No, well, I, he, he helps. I, he helps, but I'm the cooker. I do the cooking. So, Wait, did you find a cookbook with no, no tomatoes in the whole cookbook? Okay. Can you? <laughs> anyway, tell us what you're cooking. Thank you. Thank you, Trisha. He needs a firm hand. Tonight, I made Vietnamese caramel salmon. It was. Oh, yeah. What the hell that? <laughs> Your reactions are out of step tonight, Trisha. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you. It was delicious. Last night, I made chicken Wait, with sweet and sour caramel onions. Salmon? Yeah. Vietnamese caramel salmon. It was caramel salmon. Mm-hmm. It was delicious. Oh, you know what? Next time I'm there, we are not, you're not making me order out again. <laughs> Like, no, I'll cook something. You're, you're cooking caramel salmon for me. I want it that. It was delicious. This is so strange because I've lived with Chris several times in my life. <laughs> and he's always been a classic for the chicken. Some chicken and some rice. Well, yeah. And I, I made this great chicken with sweet and sour onions. And then I made some mustard chicken. It was great. And then, yeah. Next this up reminds, some... this is, I'm being triggered by my mom who bought a cookbook, 365 Ways of Doing Chicken. We went through some really difficult <laughs> period of chicken. <laughs> Could at have been worse. At least it was chicken. Chicken's yeah, at, at, least... the, at the end of the year, you were like, if I ever eat chicken <laughs> again, I enjoy it. I am frustrated with how many times you have to go to the supermarket because you're like, oh, I need a teaspoon of ginger. That sucks. <laughs> You've got to read the recipe first. I know, but you always forget like one thing. You're like scallions or... Pomegranate syrup, which is a thing, by the way. I am just pleased that I picked up a new hobby in the middle I'm of quarantine. I'm really impressed, Chris. Yeah. I really what are you am. two doing? I, wait, can I wait? Can I? I do want to go back to one question. I mm-hmm. really mean this. 
Are you cooking with tomatoes? No, I don't like tomatoes. Why does this freak you out? You no. should shut up because you don't eat meat, okay? <laughs> so there's all, everyone's got something on their no list. So don't come at me. There's other well, things that grow in the garden, Jason. I'm not, I will spare the listeners as to why you don't eat tomatoes. It's a pretty different reason as to why I don't eat meat. But no, it's just because tomatoes are in so many recipes, so many different cuisines. Not really. None of the ones that no? I have. No. Nope. Right. Nope. If you ignore okay. Italian food, you're pretty good. Which is fine because like nothing against Italians, but the food's kind of like all the same. Sorry. No, it's not. I mean, how many, how many different, listen, it doesn't matter what shape you twist the pasta <laughs> in. <laughs> They're each very different. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure the flavor profile of each, I'm sure, is wildly different. Anyway. It's all stolen from China anyway. So. so, yeah, that's what they say. What skill did you two pick up since you came from my cooking? I, I can't wait to hear about what did you pick up that was so great? Sculpting? I don't know what. I, I wrote an op-ed that... Uh, oh, you want to talk about it? Okay. Yeah, no, I wrote an op-ed where I talked a little bit about my experience working in the Trump administration and then the reasons why I strongly, strongly recommend that everyone vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, but yeah, I got, I got lots of, lots of people. I got lots of really positive feedback. No one has come after me yet. Um, so that's good. I think you were lucky in doing it now. Cause yeah. I think if you had done it six months ago, yeah, people would have come for you. I think I think so. The yeah, things that you great. say in the op-ed now, everyone is saying them loudly and vocally, uh, screaming it from the rooftops. Uh, you would have your voice would have stood out clearer had you done it before, and I think that would have been bad for you overall. But yeah, Trisha, did you read it? I did. What'd you think? You can be candid. I thought it was fair in the sense that it, I mean, you made a distinction between the department of ed where you worked and the fact that you thought that people were very passionate and and engaged in their jobs and really cared about making education better for everyone. And then you made a distinction between what it was like to access the White House (laughs) and the disorganization and all of the shoddy things that were happening there. So I think that was, I think in some ways that's probably what saves the op-ed because you're not trashing everything. You're not trashing the whole administration. I think Jason's always been very even-handed about his work there. If you go back, listeners, like two seasons ago, Jason, we we talked to Jason for like two and a half hours about his work in the Trump administration. The secret episodes. The secret episodes. We play them them backwards. (laughs) But yeah, if uh, I think you've always been really even-handed about what the Department of Education does. And I learned so much. I I always tell people about how Department of Education works. But go check out Jason's op-ed. It's really freaking cool. So let's jump into topics. We are going to talk about free speech. So Jason, why don't you take us there? I've heard a couple of interviews now with Emily Bazelon, who's written a story for the New York Times about freedom of speech and the tension between freedom of speech in a democracy and disinformation, on the other hand. And it reminded me a long time ago, 20 years or so, when I was in Amsterdam and went to the Anne Frank house. And I remember... Prior to that, I never had any kind of a critical or even questioning view of freedom of speech. And I remember in the basement of the house, they had these exhibits and there was an exhibit about about freedom of speech in different democracies and about the Holocaust. And I remember reading that in many European countries at the time, and I think this is still the case, it was illegal for someone to publicly deny that the Holocaust occurred. And not only that, but I remember reading that there were quotes from leaders in European countries complaining about the fact that Americans, the United States, Americans could deny the Holocaust with no consequences, and that, that was, th- those ideas would bleed into Europe, and Europeans would then you know, be convinced by them. And it was this kind of, you know, if, if America would not allow this disinformation, we would not have as much of a kind of white supremacist or you know, neo-Nazi movement as we have. And that was the first time I ever you know, even considered like, that you would put any, any kind of real limits on, on freedom of speech. Uh, And I didn't think a whole lot of it. I mean, it was an interesting moment, but I still was like, ah, I think First Amendment, freedom of speech is really important. I I kind of left there still feeling like, well, the way we do it in the United States, I think it's probably better. But now, you know, fast forward 20 years later, 
And we just have this enormous problem with disinformation. I mean, just all kinds of things being said that aren't true and denied, things denied that happen. Given all the problems we're having with disinformation and foreign governments interfering in our elections and conspiracy theories, I mean, do you think we need to rethink the First Amendment and whether we need more guardrails up that might actually limit speech to some extent, but prevent the spread of disinformation? I think we have to be really careful about what we mean by some of the terms, right? So I think that with something like um, disinformation, the idea is that it was the information is created to deliberately mislead people. But I also think that it gets confused with misinformation, mm -hmm. which is just a mistake without any kind of intent, right? And I think misinformation, I think of that as particular to individuals, groups of people, probably unintentional, obviously unintentional, right? And so when you think about something like free speech, who are the purveyors of free speech? And who in our current conversation is guilty of disinformation? Like, I think for individual people, say on a, on a Facebook page, you, you've wrote something down that's wrong. I think of that as misinformation. It's not done with any kind of deliberate intent, but you've misunderstood something and you're spreading it. It's spreading wild, like wildfires. That's, that's one specific kind of thing. But when someone has actively created disinformation and used their tools and mechanism to spread it widely and knowingly, that's a very different thing, right? One of the things that I've been seeing in terms of the research is that the, the group in the United States that's most guilty of disinformation is actually our government. And so I think when, you're, when we're talking about free speech, I think we've got to just be really careful about what exactly we're talking about. Because you're not talking about curtailing individual misinformation. So I, that's like a thing for me. I think I really have to be really, I think we have to just like really be careful about it. Because what you're probably upset about is kind of the organized nature but those of two how things are information linked. is being spread. No? But those things are linked, right? Because disinformation becomes misinformation. I remember I waged war on Facebook against this meme that kept getting shared about how much people in government make. So yeah. it was something like senators make this for life, presidents make this for life, house make this for life, and our veterans make, you know, you know, a piece of string and a sandwich, like tear, tear down the country. And it's like a smooth Google would show you that all those facts, all those figures are incorrect. Someone created that with intent. And then so that's disinformation, but then it gets spread by people who are like, this is an outrage. And then it's misinformation, but it's root. It still had an intent to sort of confuse, delay, like the delivery of actual information, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, so that's the first point I want to make. The second point that you make is really great in that, you know, the, the purveyor of disinformation is really the government through propaganda of one way or another, you know, whatever the propaganda is, you know, um, and yeah, I think you're right. We need to be really clear about that. But I think, and Jason, this may or may not be your point. I'm less concerned about disinformation from the government. Let's put that to the side for a second, right? But I'm more concerned about disinformation from independent actors. Oh, I, I'm less concerned about that at all. Yeah, I, I know that you, but say more about that and then I'll tell you about why I feel that way. I'm, I'm less concerned about it because I think that's always happened. I think the challenge with disinformation that is organized and structured is that now you don't actually have a means of challenging it or fighting it because it's coming from an accepted structure. So it's like it's coming from the New York Times or it's coming from these spaces where you have always trusted them to say the truth to the best of their ability, right? You've got data, you've got research backing you up. If an individual says something that, yes, they might've started with malicious intent and I come to you and I said, well, you know what? The data shows that this is exact, this is wrong. I feel fairly comfortable that we are engaging in the right action around information. But if, how do I prove the government's wrong? How do I prove um, these sort of bastions of like accuracy or journalism or any of those kinds of spaces? How do I say those places are wrong? I think it's a problem when you have organized, structured disinformation channels. That feels much more scary to me than an individual creating a meme on, on and having it run wild on Facebook. Well, it's irresponsible for people to believe but, things on Facebook. That's just I mean, you, know, you know what's interesting, though, Tricia? It's interesting hearing you characterize it like that. 
I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, I feel like government disinformation is probably the oldest disinformation of all time. I mean, Julius Caesar was writing history. I put that in quotes and it was just propaganda to me. And I hadn't put this together before, but just listening to you, to me, what is new and different is that non-government actors can say things that aren't true and get, say them through a megaphone that gets amplified and spread around really quickly. Such as? Such as, you know, there are um, that, you know, Hillary Clinton and John Podesta have a pedophile ring in the, in a QAnon, in a basement of a pizza place that don't, that doesn't, that doesn't have a basement. I completely get that. But I think my challenge with that is if I demonstrate that those things are false and you continue to believe them anyway, it's much more about why you need to believe something that I can factually prove is wrong. And there's, that's a different, that's not even about free speech, right? But I don't understand how, explain to me, so, you know, story gets out that there's a, you know, kids are chained up in the basement of a pizza place in Northwest DC. I don't, how would you possibly go about proving that that's not true? Well, some guy did when he bust in there with a gun and, and there was no basement. True. It just wasn't well, true. Mean, there are some, no, but there are people stop. that still believe it though. But that's Trisha's point. Trisha, go ahead. Yeah, to my point is like, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is how does one limit that? Because if we talk about limiting free speech, first, I guess we've got to distinguish the kinds of speech, right? Because we've got to distinguish commercial speech because does that mean that ads can stop lying to me? I mean, so we've got to like, we've got to unpack some of these things, right? I think partly what you're getting at is the fact that people just distrust the mechanisms that we had in place to prove something was right or wrong. Like if, for example, the New York Times reported that incident and said, you know what? We tracked and we traced as much as we could and we just can't find any evidence that this is true. I think in another period in time, people would have said, okay, fair enough. There's no evidence of it. But I think what you have now is evidence doesn't matter to people. They'd rather sort of continue with their belief, irregardless, is that a word? Regardless of the evidence. So I think psychologically, you're talking about something else now. As I think about what you're saying, Tricia, I, I think the idea I have now is whether or not we agreed to, let's say, outlaw disinformation, however we decided to define that. Yeah, whatever that means. I don't know that we could ever, ever execute that. We could ever actually, because we don't have a shared, you know, collective, there's no institution that enough of us collectively trust in, whether it's a private institution like the New York Times or a public institution like the Justice Department or the FBI or whatever, I'm just thinking like, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know who would people trust. Like, I think the three of us could potentially say, well, you could put together a body of people to evaluate these things and render a decision, whatever, but okay, lots but and lots of people would not buy into that. And other people would propose somebody to do that, that we would say, whoa, whoa, whoa I don't, I don't trust those people. Hold on a second though. Have oh, we pulled yeah. the camera back so far that it's fallen off the dolly? Like, hold on for one second. Before we talk about what to do about it, let's just talk about disinformation, right? Yep. Let's talk about the flat earth society. So there's people out there who believe and propagate the idea that the earth is flat as we believed it was in like the 0100s or whatever the fuck. But even like most like alive sentient people, there's enough details to show that the earth is not flat. So now we get to the, now we get to the choke point, right? Could we say you may not, you being the everyone, you may not publish information that draws attention to or pr proposes to set up the false narrative that the earth is flat. Could we do that? Just stick with my example. Could we do that? I think so. I yeah. think we could. I think we could within certain settings. You could say that if you have a club that chooses to subscribe to those ideas, we probably can't stop you but it has to be a closed club, right? It has to be a group of people who uh, commit to this internally. I'm not saying that you have to be some secret cult, but it's kind of no. like, 
I, I think there has to be some rules around what can enter the public sphere and how sure. that information is treated when it enters the public sphere. We're all old enough to remember when the National Enquirer was a joke magazine on the side of, <laughs> you know, it was next to the candy at the checkout line. And it always it sold like, more copies than the serious ones, though. Don't don't act but, like it didn't have an no, influence. No, 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 no. But I'm, I'm not saying anything about its popularity. I'm just saying, like, even as a child, yeah. I understood right? That this was partly entertainment. I understood that I shouldn't take this seriously. Like I could not come cut something out of the National Enquirer for current events Fridays in sixth grade. Like I understood that. That's You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what I'm saying, Trisha, is not necessarily to drive people underground and be like, you can't discuss this in polite society, but just you can't public tracks and expect that it's going to end up in the library next to scientific journals. Like this is not the other side to the idea that the earth is round. Like you need to understand that. Like, you know, when I was little, I played Dungeons and Dragons and I used to read books about it and write adventures about it and all this other stuff. But I never actually went into a public sphere or raised my hand in a class and be like, let's discuss elves. Where are they? <laughs> like, I understand that that's a fantasy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I'm just saying for putting information in its place. I don't think what we're talking about is um, what Jason, you proposed, right? Which is curtailing free speech. I think what we're talking about is accurately labeling free speech. You know, I mean, although I think there was an attempt at that with Fox News in the beginning, right? Which is the idea that it was actually not news, but it was an entertainment source. And I think those- Wow, remember that? We moved away from that real fast. Well, you know what? We moved away from it really fast once you had an, um, an authority figure give it weight. And then you had to like engage it. But I think if you perceived it as a soap opera or entertainment program or a fictionalized version of something and you call it that, then I think you can comfortably live with those terms. Yeah. I think what we have is just like a blurring of the line. Yeah. And I think that that's different. But I'm curious, Jason, when you were thinking about it from like the international model, what had you observed about examples of things that people were not making these kinds of distinctions around like, this is an actual fact, the Holocaust happened. And you weren't allowed to say that that didn't happen, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm no expert on this, but I think in other countries, there are certain things that it's been determined. We've, we've settled this. It's kind of like the, the earth example, like <laughs> this is settled. And if you say out loud, you know, if you put in writing or try to circulate ideas that are contradict those things, and I, I don't think it's a million things, but it's things you know, that actually can have an impact on people's safety and security, then, you know, then that's illegal and, and you can be prosecuted for it. And, and the other thing, I mean, I, something like Emily Bazelon talked about is in, in some places like France, there's a blackout time where like new, news is not reported about people in an election, you know, some period of time right beforehand, because it's seen that that could suddenly swing the election. And if it turned out not to be true, then obviously that would be devastating. And we don't have anything like that. We will see political ads on social media and TV up until the last second. And there will be, I mean, I think we certainly see from the president, there is this like every week or two trying to throw something else out that's going to swing things. I think it is worth considering whether there are mechanisms like that put in place and I hear what you're saying about Fox News, and I'm no fan of Fox News, but I actually think Fox News is probably one of the milder sources these days with some of the crazy stuff that... God, that how quickly did we get there that yeah. Fox well, I mean, News I is think the milder your, source? And then I was thinking about the efforts that Twitter started to make with tagging you yeah. know, tweets by the president or anyone as um, disinformation. And I actually think, you know, if we had done that earlier... Why didn't we do that earlier? People would be why alive. Didn't we just tack- People who why, are we, dead. why didn't we just yeah. say the science doesn't show that to be true? This tweet is a disinformation piece. Like, like, why didn't we just sort of like tag those things very early on? It's kind of like the refusal to identify something as a lie very, very early on because there was this sense that something couldn't be a lie depending on the authority figure. Who's- what you're asking, Trisha, though, I think is the challenge here. And it does get to this question of from a legal standpoint, what are we willing to do? Because when you say, why didn't we do that? Well, of course, we know Twitter is a for-profit company. Facebook is. So it's first of all, it's their decision whether to do it. And we have decided repeatedly, we keep kind of asking the question again as a society and then not doing anything. 
but like we have decided not to regulate much these platforms um, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, I think on the spectrum of reasons on the kind of, I don't know, most us being kind of most generous or, or I don't know, most optimistic, you know, there were, there were times when people were like, well, we, great ideas come out, you know, will come out of these things. You want more speech and you want an opportunity to debate ideas. So it was like, let those platforms do their thing. And now, you know, I think people are much more willing to potentially regulate it, although depending on people's political persuasions, they want to regulate it in different directions. But that's the kind of question, Tricia. It's like, okay, so if we decide, if we decide, like we, the people decide that we want those platforms to tag those things, are we willing to require that because we certainly don't those are choices that they've decided to make those companies well, i don't know we keep talking about as if we listen we keep talking about this as as if one we don't already have laws against this sort of thing like libel and slander are laws about certain kinds of speech and publications they are illegal two we keep talking about as if the truth is unknowable about certain things you know yeah. come on so if if the president is saying like just just drink some bleach you'll be fine like th- there's no information structure around the other side of that there is no other side of that that's simply false and like the it's be- everything's political nowadays so it's like oh well they tag the president's tweets do they give this kind of scrutiny to Joe Biden you know what Joe Biden's not saying people should drink poison and die like that that's something i feel like is in the public interest that we should push back on. We do it all the time, like I said, with libel and slander. I just can't publish something in the New York Times. I can't pay to have something in a publication that says that like Vin Diesel beat his wife if he didn't do it. Like I can't do that. He can come at me and I can be held accountable. We mandate that people control their speech all the time. Go ahead. And I think to the degree that you ask yourself, who gets this control? I mean, listen, for the most part, Folks are fairly careful, I find, in interactions on Twitter. Yes, it's clear it's a joke, it's da-da-da. So when they're getting really serious, they will say seriously, or they'll say they'll preface it with something so that you understand that this is a tweet not to be taken as entertainment, right? And I think oftentimes, I think the really powerful people who do this on Twitter, they revert to saying it's entertainment. Like, I think our fearless leader has done that. Like, oh, yes. Oh, this is joshing or I was that. But I think what we can say is that this is actually um, this is actually a tool of the government. And so that's why sometimes I think we've we've actually kind of lost some of that from even like the official Twitter of like offices of the government, arms of government, you know, like all of those places, I think, have to be held to a certain standard, such that you actually are not participating in, t- in entertainment on Twitter, because Twitter is like, in some sense, it's an entertainment platform as well. And so we, we're, we're adopting personas, we're trying on different things, we're performing. But certain personas can't be performed there. Like that should, that's probably part of that conversation is like, if you're there as a president, certain things can't come off on your feed. Yeah, you're not just someone's crazy uncle. I think you can make a reasonable argument about that. Just like how any business, if their official Twitter can't make certain claims because they know that they are attached to a a brick and mortar um, store or even an official business that can be sued. So I think that you can ask those things to be um, established pretty easily. It's Um, funny that we make all these fun with it like that. (laughs) Make all these laws around commercial interests, but the public interest, public health, we can't. I can go on Twitter and create a at Dr. Fauci says Twitter handle and just put whatever I want out there. And I could be like, take off your mask, uh, lick your neighbor's face. It'd be like, well, like, what are we supposed to do? What are we, I mean, I free think you speech? Can... <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but know you know, I... we've been flirting with that for a while. And I think that's why I think I don't like it when these things are framed as freedom of speech conversations, because they're actually not those kinds of conversations. You always have freedom of expression. Yes. But whether sure. you have access to the means of information distribution, whether you get equal access with disinformation to Twitter, Facebook, publish like mainstream publishing houses, the newspapers, that's, that's not freedom of expression. That's something else, you know, and there, that's why we have these, these gatekeepers. Um, I, and I, I'm, I'm talking and automatically I'm like, okay, but the gatekeepers are problematic. I understand that. I mean, the, the, that's the, it's, it's partially <laughs> the erosion of the gatekeepers that have created yeah. space, right? Because yeah. I think to our, to the, to the extent that we are asking ourselves, what can we agree on facts? 
And maybe that's what that opens us up to, right? Is can we agree on facts? I'm going to say can, yes. And maybe we can't agree on yes, facts, can. but we can agree on yes, can. evidence, evidence to the contrary of what someone said. And so we can say, we can establish that and say, you know what? That tweet looks like something that we're going to have to hide because we need to confirm that this is actually true. And then you might have to have a check mark next to that tweet that is red and says, that is a true tweet. <laughs> but I mean, can you imagine if your Twitter traffic was like that? It's like if you had to run your tweets through some sort of like. <laughs> some fact checking thing. <laughs> I just want to make sure. So I think I'm hearing correctly, but I want to just check this with you. It sounds like you're both saying essentially, yes, like we should establish laws and regulations that do put certain requirements and limits on the amplification of things that aren't true. I think Chris is already saying the laws are on the books. We yeah, I, we already have laws around this. It's just no, in I, certain areas we have blind spots because yeah, it's appropriate. We have, it's, we it's have gray areas because, yeah. because when you, it's interesting, you brought up libel and slander. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but you know, those, those typically will get taken up if someone has been damaged by those acts. And I think the challenge right now is a lot of damage can be done, even if it's not libel or slander, even if it's not about a specific person that is, you know, incorrect, that that's a lie about that one person. People can lie about groups of people. It's not as simple as, well, then you're going to get sued for libel. I, I think you make great points, Chris, but I do think if we're going to protect ourselves from some of this disinformation, we need some new laws. Like the ones we have are not adequate given all of the, given where we are technologically and otherwise. Would you agree with that? I'm always down for new laws. I'm always down for examining laws. If I was going to sum up my feelings around this topic, it's that I think we are treating this too dramatically. I think we already have structures in government and in our social consciousness that all expression is not necessarily valuable to be spread in public. We already have that conception. It's just that we want to throw our hands up around certain topics and certain times of, oh my God, we can't have people telling us what to do. We have people telling us what we can say uh, in public all the time. I'm not talking about fire in a crowded movie theater. Like that's a boring conversation. But what I'm, it's like going back to libel and slander, like I can't publish the New York Times, Ivanka Trump ate a baby and I saw the whole thing. But I can, in the New York Times, be like, masks. I don't know if they're going to save people li- people's lives. And then a quarter of a million people die. And somehow, we're in the first case, Ivanka Trump can sue me and stop it, right? But all these dead, and there's no one to take up the case there. We, we have these blocks when it comes mm-hmm. to this certain kinds of information. So yes, what, what you said, that's what I'm saying. But I just want to, I want to just rock back on the fact that like, this is too dramatic. We are very familiar with how to deal with this. I, I just don't know why we're not applying in this moment. I think that's a really fair point is that we don't extrapolate in the mm-hmm. right way. I mean, I think that that's the, mm-hmm. tr- I mean, and, and oftentimes I think the confusion is about what are we talking about? Are we talking about distribution channels? Are we talking about platforms? Are we, you know, and so people get very confused about that. Cause I think if you say to yourself that Twitter is publishing, then people get to interpret it in very specific ways. And then each individual is a publisher on that platform. And then people go down this road. But everyone doesn't have equal access to publishers. That's, you know what, do you, I asked you this before we started, but you've never heard of Conservapedia, have you? No. Conservapedia, nobody look it up, okay? Don't Don't give them any more hits. (laughs) I know, nobody look it up. Just take my word for it. Conservapedia is a conservative Wikipedia. Okay. So if you look up whatever in Wik- in Conservapedia, it will give you the conservative interpretation of facts. What if I looked up bank? Uh, I don't know about bank, but I spent a lot of time looking up particular movies. Like if you look up like Ghostbusters or Back to the Future, just things that you think are like, what could be the problem? They'll rip it apart. And it just goes through all this other stuff. They can say whatever they want because anyone coming there, much like the National Enquirer in the 80s in the supermarket aisle, I know what I'm getting when I walk in. Okay. It's not CNN.com. I'm not expecting fair and balance. I want Conservapedia, which is just nonstop, unbelievable stupidity and hilarity. Now, if you sign up for that, that's fine. That's a publishing platform, I guess, as it were. People come for Twitter and Facebook as if we're entitled to it. But my point is, to your point, Tricia, is that like, 
Twitter, if we think about it as publishing is fine. Everyone has have access to a publisher. If I have a publishing house, you can't kick in my door and be like, you better print this because I saw you print something and said something opposite. And my, you, you can't do great that. I'd be point. like, get That's the such a fuck out. Uh, <laughs> get the fuck out with your bullshit. I'm just like, I want people to be a little bit more discerning. Like, I mean, yeah, me too. Like- <laughs> it's just too, you know what, though? I just need constant reinforcement of my worldview. And it's too seductive. If I see it, I don't care where it comes from. I'm just going to retweet it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I, I'm I kidding. I'm I, kidding. Clearly. I totally get it. I clearly. Get it. But I right. think of it, can we can we think of it as a game? But I do understand though, people do take it really seriously such that they'll burst into a home. But, yeah, they'll it. show up at a pizza place with a gun and fire two shots into the Hello. ceiling to save the children in the basement that doesn't exist. Anyway. Okay, um, good so, job everybody. That was, that was, I have more to say, but we gotta move on. Let's move on to our second topic. Trisha wants to talk about nature versus nurture. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> So a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was hanging out with my friend Amanda and we were talking about families, our family histories. And one of the things, topics that came up is that, you know, one of us hadn't seen a family member for many, many years. And then we suddenly reconnected with that family member and we saw traits that were as if we lived together the entire time. And so I was, I walked away from that conversation thinking to myself, dear me, like, this is a thing I thought was sort of made from my life experiences and from all of the thing experience all of the situations I'd placed myself in. And then I realized if I hadn't seen this family member in 20 years and suddenly we're in the space together and it feels like we're mirror images of each other, how much do I really have control over myself and who I'm gonna be? Like how much do I really have say in what I actually put out in the world and who I am? And so I was like and Chris and I were talking about this briefly because we both study psychology. And let's all be honest, y'all. If you took an intro psych, you know you went down a rabbit hole around n- nature versus nurture. It's and all they want to talk about in Psych 101 study. and 201. <laughs> all they want to talk about. <laughs> and 201. But, advanced nature versus nurture. Advanced nature versus nurture. But there's something there's something really interesting to me about it because the question is like we as Americans have really sold on the idea that we can shape ourselves oh yeah pull yourself up by the bootstraps right Right? rags to riches Mm -hmm. yeah like we can create ourselves anew frontier mindset just right yeah like let's be honest though but can we can we create ourselves anew or are we sort of destined to sort of have some of the things that our families put in us (laughs) i often my, my knee jerk reaction to the nature versus nurture question is often like I don't know that ultimately it matters because these questions are real. And I think that's an interesting, you know, your friend, Amanda, that that's, that's always a fascinating moment when you hear stuff like that, but nature and nurture are both things that happen to you that are out of your control. (laughs) And so I don't know when you ask that question of like, you know, can you choose it? I mean, this is where, you know, I've done a little studying of Kabbalah and I think, you know, Kabbalah comes down. I'm like, no, like, you don't have a choice because all these things have happened to you, both the things that went into your DNA and then the way that you were raised. And yeah, you may think you, you make choices, but just, you know, those choices are always informed by all these things that are out of your control. So yeah. what of what of the man-made myth? What about what about the make your make yourself myth in the US then? See, how I does, enjoy I like the man-made myth. Sure. I like yeah. it. I like it's it comforting. because I feel like I don't know if it's just comforting. It's invigorating and motivating to believe that like I can rise above my genetic circumstance. You know, as I'm saying, it feels like judging your parents and your ancestors. That's not really what I mean. (laughs) That's not, that's not how I mean it, but it's like, you know, I think about someone who like their parents are like overweight or uh, they don't take care of themselves. And then you come out and you're like an Olympic gymnast or something, you know, there were choices like Jason, you're saying Kabbalah says that it, this is, it's all out of your control, but you made a choice to be like, I want to maybe not in opposition to your nature, maybe not like, well, I'm going to do this because my parents are this way or because, you know, I just feel like being able to make that choice. Like I want a different path for myself. I really enjoy that storyline. I, I feel like I embody that storyline. I think it's really motivating. That said, 
when my dad was near the end of his life, I spent a lot of time taking care of him. And I realized that when he's thinking about something really, really carefully, his mouth gets really small like this, (laughs) really small, like pucker. And I do that all the time without thinking about it. And watching him do it, I was like, oh, oh, what? What is going on? Who taught you how to do that? And I was like, it's crazy because in that moment, I mean, I, I look like people in my family and stuff. So like, I'm familiar with that. But like little behaviors like that, I was like, oh, my God, I don't have any control over that. I mean, and even if I wanted to, even if I was like, well, I won't do that because my dad does it. It's so involuntary. I don't know. I guess I'm rambling now. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the man-made myth that you're talking about, Trisha, like I, I enjoy nurture more than nature. Nature, <laughs> nature makes me a little anxious. Like the fact <laughs> that like, make you anxious. it makes me a little anxious. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest. How about you? What, what do you? I like the idea that you've admitted that nature makes you anxious mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. in the nature question is a sense of no control. Funny yeah. enough, I was watching, um, I was reading a timeline of a woman who's pregnant. Um, one of the popular magazine is doing a feature on a woman who's pregnant. And she was saying that she had no control over her body in some ways, like it was going to do what it's going to do. And then she also realized that she had no control over the child that was coming on a certain level, right? She was going to try the best that she could, but there had to be a part of her that sort of gave over to the fact that this child was going to be who it was going to be and that she couldn't kind of control it. And so I feel like there's always been that tension and that the nature versus nurture conversation was always that tension about how much control do you let go of or do you hold on to? So when you said it, Chris, it really brought that home to me. Mm -hmm. Like that's really what that tension is for folks. I'm thinking about this now, like as a parent, just based on what you just said, it is a psychologically uncomfortable tension that you're talking about. I mean, I, in a quiet moment, I like to think like, yeah, like children, you know, they're going to grow up and they're going to be the people they are. And we're here to kind of be there for them, but we should let them be who they are. And then if I'm in a supermarket and my kid's yelling, I have to admit, like, I get all like tense. Like, what is this saying about me as a parent? Like, I got to show, you know? Um, I mean, I like how it's about you, but it's, I, it's I guess all that's what about we're talking me. about. That's yeah, all it's I mean, about. Yeah, yeah. But I guess that makes sense when we talk about nature because then it's like you look at your parents or you look at your children, and that is, if not a referendum on you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's it's a, a, if not a referendum <laughs> on you, it's definitely a comment about you, you know? Absolutely. And it's one that you have to face. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a strong comment, and I think it's actually – it's humbling, I think. I think it's humbling, especially because of the man-made myth notion, I think, for America, right? So much of America is about you, you shape yourself. Mm-hmm. Forget about your past. You're moving into the future and you can create whatever you want, right? And America doesn't even want to carry its past with it. It wants to like wash it anew all the time. All the time, right? yes. Yeah. Right? But then there's this idea that there's a stain, right? And so, like, if you look at the parallel of, like, the story of America and then the parallel that we're drawing right now between nature and nurture, can we ever, like, rip asunder the stain of our, of our heritage? Or do we carry it with us and we have to let it inform us all the time? Yes. Right? One. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think you have you a choice. You don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it. But, like, you set up as if we have a choice between those two things. And I don't think we do. I think it, I think it informs who you are. And then you have to – you and all the forces that act on you are going to act through that to create another chapter. But I guess you really can't escape – Something. You really can't escape the nature part. So, Jason, I'm curious what you have to say about this because you and your sister grew up together, but – she was adopted, right? Are there ways in which she, that you both echo your parents? How does, I'm just curious about how that, because that's like a natural experiment because you both, not that any child has the same parents, right? But like you both had similar nurtures, different natures, but in some ways, just off the top of my head, you must be similar in some way. What does that look like? It's a really interesting question, Chris. And, you know, I think we'd all agree this one example shouldn't, you know, teach us anything. No, but it's the one we have right now in this call. So we are so incredibly different. And my sister, I mean, the 
joke about her in the family is it, everyone wants to be her when they grow up in the sense that, I mean, my family, you know, this is the very stereotypical Jewish thing. Like guilt is used to manage all relationships. Like that is how we interact with each other. And, and so, you know, you go to this event because, you know, you'll feel guilty. If not, your mom's going to give you a hard time. Like that is how it is. And my sister throughout her life has felt no obligation to do anything at all. Case in point, my sister and my brother-in-law and my niece moved to Alaska several years ago. They have not left the state of Alaska since they moved there. We have gone and visited them. Um, every and, summer. Yeah, just about. Every, every summer, except this one. This is the first one that, that we haven't. And uh, I mean, they are, they're good. Like <laughs> they, they do not like... If for no other reason, I could, I would, I just couldn't do that. Like, I just couldn't. And I'm not saying that with any pride. Like, I could not do that. Like, she's like, this is what we want to do. We're doing it. Uh, so, you know, I mean, See, that, that seems, it seems to make a case for nature. But at the, at the end of the day, you know, like I said, no one has the same parents. Doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter if you're twins out of the same woman yeah. living in the same house. You don't have the that's, same parents. That's what but, I but I do think it's interesting, you know, twins. And adopted siblings are always the natural experiment, right? right? Because that's, we, psychologists have long used that to sort of like see like, oh, who's going to win nature or nurture? Like it's a cage <laughs> match or something. Uh, <laughs> I don't but know. They, it's interesting. But they usually By the way, that's the thing I really like about your sister. I don't, remember the, I don't know if you remember the first time I met your sister. She must no. have been a, a teenager or something. Probably. But she had a, I mean, she had such a developed give no fucks attitude. I was literally taken aback. I was like, <laughs> I rocked back on my heels. I said, oh my God, this girl is a spitfire. She and wants then, to punch me and everyone else in the face. And then Damn. proceeded to adopt it. And then you proceeded to adopt that attitude as best as you could. Me? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can learn something from Jason's sister. <laughs> so the next time you go to Alaska, tell her I said, thank you. I will. I will. <laughs> no, give no fucks. Oh That's boy, where are we That's landing her. on this? Who won this conversation, nature or nurture? Well, you know what? You know what? And and just like a psych class, they never do because <laughs> of the very point that you always make, which is that no two natures are the same. Yeah. No two nurtures, nurtures are, are the same. same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing is happening. Like you are not getting the same mother that your sister got. It just is, it's just. It's, You're just not doing and it. And I, I like that. I like that because it's really about the idea that your in interactions are powerful. Yeah, that's really what it's about is like you control that. But yeah, it is really funny. <laughs> I know. I mean, so, you know, listeners, I don't know. I'm just it was a wonder for me because I was thinking to myself, why are we working so hard to change every part of ourselves when there might be parts that are just <laughs> a given? You know, when, I, when you brought up this question, I thought of I don't know if you two have read this uh, Martin Seligman, Martin Seligman book, what you what you can change and what you can't. Uh -uh. Sounds good, one. though. It's good. And I mean, you know, he takes a very scientific look and he just says straight up, you can change this. You can't change that. <laughs> like, <laughs> if, if you're like this, there's nothing you can do about it. But this over here, you could do something about that. It's very, it's, in some ways, it was very kind of refreshing. It's like, all right, fuck, I'm going to stop trying to do that. I can't do that. I'm going to try to do this. I, okay, one question to take us out. This always fascinates me. Genghis Khan, he had a lot of sex back in the day. And they say... 8% of men in the Mongol region are descendants of Genghis Khan. Hmm. And it translates out to like 0.5% of the world's population is related to him. Do you think that it goes back so far, like traits are passed epigenetically down in this way? Like we're talking about nature and nurture. This is something I've always thought about. I was like, if you could identify those people in some way, are they similar on some something? If you got those several million people together in a stadium, or they all look to the side and be like, oh shit. <laughs> I wonder, I don't know. There's no answer to that. That's not a question I, that you can answer. It's just that we're, we're talking about it. And that's something that's always fascinated me. So, I mean, the thing that I think about when you ask that question is a very large portion of the world in one way or another lives, you know, to some extent under the influence of Jesus's teachings. Mm -hmm. There was a time when I think more than half the world lived 
in countries that were informed by Marx's teachings. And then, so then when I hear your question, Chris, I'm like, I wonder, I mean, you can't do this, but if you could quantify, like, well, what, what's more, is it like who you're descended from? Or is it like (laughs) which country you're born into that happens to adopt the religion or the political, uh, you know, economy or structure of, uh, of the certain questions are fun, but of course we'll never answer them, but they definitely are fun and anxiety provoking to think about. Uh, let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, hear, read, or experienced. You think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. And I'm also going to reintroduce the idea of the anti-recommendation, uh, just in <laughs> oh, case anyone I'm has getting some, excited. one of those. <laughs> so I might. Uh, but why don't we start with Jason? So I have a good one this time. This time. I, I, I heard an episode of This American Life, and there was a particular segment called Music of the Night After Night After Night. And I listened it, to this when you sent it to me. Ah, it's so good. Describe so it, it is. It is about this guy did a bunch of interviews with people who were in the pit orchestra of Phantom of the Opera. First of all, put the pandemic aside for a second, even pre-pandemic. So this is the longest continuously running show on Broadway. These people, um, when they first started playing for the show, signed contracts that gave them kind of basically guaranteed employment until the show would end. And no one expected it to go as long as it did. So you had this group of people, many, many of them doing this for like close to 30 years. And these people cannot stand each other. It's just fascinating because, you know, I'm, I don't know a lot about this world. I'm not a musician. I'm not on Broadway or anything. But it's like, you know, these people got with so many people you know, musicians aspire to, which is a steady, well-paying gig, right? And they are miserable, absolutely miserable, hating being around each other. And they're playing the same things over and over. It was so funny, though, the way they talked about each other. And this guy moved across country to get away from the other ones. It's like the guy um, painted part of his glasses black so he couldn't see the people to his right because they bothered him so much. And then, of course, pandemic hits. And you had people and you heard the same people. They had been interviewed before talking about how much they hated it. And then they're like, I really miss it. Of course. I know. I know that's how I talked to them. I know how I talked about them before, but like, I really miss it. It is hilarious. And to hear that, like, you know, people in their fifties who are like esteemed musicians behaving this way towards other people and talking this way about other people is it's astonishing and hilarious. I love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Trisha, top that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thanks so much. I don't even want to. No, I'm actually going to recommend a a New Yorker profile that I read of an author by the name of Sadia Hartman. Um, She's an instructor at Columbia University in the English department. She has a PhD. She's a professor of English and comparative literature. But I think oftentimes people think of her as a kind of historian. And one of the things I've found really fascinating about her and the book that I had bought, um, which I wanted to read, and I think the reason why she was being profiled is that she wrote this book called Wayward Lives and Beautiful Experiments, which is set in New York and Philadelphia at the turn of the century. And it's an attempt to kind of blend history and fiction to kind of chronicle the sexual and gender rebellious nature of black women in that at that time Hmm. and what's fascinating to me about her is that is like the nature of her study like she finds police reports reports from social workers taxi cab receipts like she she like has this whole set of material that she then constructs a story around about who these girls could possibly be so there's a hint of it that's real but then there's this kind of imaginative element to the story as well. And I always, I've always kind of wanted to do that. Like I've always thought it'd be really powerful to kind of imagine like the lived experiences of people that are just kind of glanced at quickly in major works of art or major literature pieces or something along those lines. And so <laughs> she's somewhat of a controversial figure because people aren't quite sure what to label her work because part of it is grounded in like historical documents and documentation, but then the other parts are like, in some people perceive it as like fights of fancy. But what's noteworthy and why she's valuable is that she makes the ordinariness of black people's lives like 
This person was living in this period. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They didn't want to be a maid for your white family. They want, you know what I mean? It's just like this really interesting idea of like, let's not make these people extraordinary. Let's just make them really, really normal <laughs> with normal desires, right? And like, but desires that you yourself might recognize because you're not that fundamentally different than them. Yeah. It was a really, really, really interesting profile. But at the end of it, you are left with a kind of recognition that we've just done such a, such a disservice to Black people in our history and the way we tell their stories and tell our stories and extend the lives of Black people in the past. We just kind of go, oh, well, that didn't work out for them. But I, I hate that. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I hate that they have to be either really extraordinary people to, to garner our attention or really horrific things have to happen to them. And so, I don't know. I just, I found the profile very riveting. And then I really wanted to read the book on these girls because the whole idea was that they were like, I don't want to be a maid. I want to go into the city. I want to get a job. I want to have sex. I want to wear nice clothes. And who doesn't understand those ideas? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Cool. That's cool. That's cool. That's I like cool. that. That's a good right? one. Uh, <laughs> I have a recommendation. Then I have an anti-recommendation. Tell me. Tell us. Tell us. First, my recommendation. And, you know, we throw out a lot of recommendations. But I want you two in particular to listen to this. This uh, podcast that I found quite by accident called Afroqueer. It's about mm -hmm. queer Africans living, loving, surviving, and thriving on the African continent. Okay. And every episode is like a 20-minute bite of a person in, one, in an African country who is dealing with their queerness in one way. Either it's a, a story of celebration or it's a story of heartbreak or horror or something. Um, I love it for a couple of reasons. One Anything that educates me on Africa or Africans, I'm 100% in. I feel like it's the thing that we, it's part of anti-Blackness. We never talk about the African continent or African yep. countries. So anything that can expose me to African people and their stories, I want to be there. Um, also, you know, as a queer person, listening to the stories of these queer people and their stories of survival, it gives me hope and it makes me feel really proud Um just to hear what's going on and how people are surviving and thriving. And lastly, as always, when I hear these stories, you know, we think about the way that we live our lives here. We think about the struggles that we face in our days. And then you listen to these stories about people who literally cannot be anything other than themselves. And they live in an environment that might be so toxic that every day their lives are threatened, but what choice do they have but to be exactly who they are and love exactly who they love. That's the thing I love about human beings. It's the thing I love about the human experience is that you just can't stop humans from being human. It doesn't matter how many acid attacks. It doesn't matter how many times you pull people out of their beds in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter if you sexually, it doesn't matter. People are going to be who they are going to be. So please listen to Afroqueer. Um, oh, please, cool. please. It, um, you two just listen to the first three episodes. Just see if you like it. It's really bite-sized. Uh, I love it. So now my anti-recommendation, which is unfortunate <laughs> because it's on the heels of recommendation I made several episodes, episodes ago. <laughs> so seconds before we recorded, I finished watching the Netflix special, Everything's Fine, starring Sarah Cooper. You might remember that Sarah Cooper made her name during the pandemic as a comedian who would lip sync along to Donald Trump statements and also act them out. So just heightening the hilarity and insanity of what he's saying. Talk about someone who had a good 2020. Um, she's gone from doing this on Instagram to having a Netflix special, which Netflix, it had everybody in it. Helen Mirren, Maya Rudolph, Fred Armisen, Winona Ryder. Uh, <laughs> it was star-studded. It was so bad. I, I am shocked. They just, listen, I think Sarah Cooper is really good at the one thing that we saw her do. Uh, I don't know if her skills extend beyond that, but if this is any indication, uh, then they do not. And it's a shame. You know, that's interesting. I just want to say real quick, I, I watch a bunch of her other stuff on YouTube and I don't have as strong a reaction as you're having. I'd be interested to, well, I don't know if I should don't, say it, but- Don't, it's, okay. you'll never get the hour back. <laughs> but but um, 
but like I I I like I want to like her stuff and but it's just like I don't laugh. It's just not there. I didn't laugh for an hour. I don't recommend it. You love Sarah Cooper, listener. You know you do. And so oh when my God, it, that got such a good review. Really? Okay. Let's let's do this. Let's have a talk back. Everyone, homework time. Everyone watch. Everything's fine. And then you know what? I don't know. We'll figure out. Write us. Let us know. I, I, you know what? We're going to put an email address in the show notes. I'm curious if you enjoyed it. And I want you to be really specific about what you enjoyed. You should know that John Hamm shows up for this because of course he does. John Hamm is just happy to be there. You call him up. He'll probably come on this podcast. He shows up for everything. Yeah, he is in everything. It's he true. He doesn't even care. You know what? He's the white Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> he will just show up. <laughs> if, you're, if you click a pen and take out a checkbook, John Hamm is there. Now, I say this without judgment, but wait a second. John Hamm has not been in any superhero movies. He's not been in Star, no Wars. Star Wars. Like movies. He doesn't do the, that stuff. Samuel Jackson does it all. He does the indie he's flicks. Incredible. He does the sci-fi. He's a, everything. Uh, an elderly black man is the most bankable star in Hollywood. <laughs> Samuel Jackson is a man in his 70s, and he's holding down multiple franchises. Good for him. No, and Cash you know, even, it's true. Even, even at the beginning of his career, I mean, look, I think he's fantastic. This is not a critique. He does not have Hollywood looks, right? Like he, You would just not expect that this is the guy. He's got Hollywood attitude, though. Yeah, that's what it is. He's got a Hollywood attitude. Like you just look at him and you're like, you know, he's got that bad motherfucker thing down, he right? Does. Yeah. And so, especially a black man who's got the bad motherfucker thing down, like that, it's bankable. It's bankable. But it's funny because, uh, I mean, I guess Nick Fury is a bad motherfucker. But then I never saw any of the Star Wars movie. I don't know if he's if he's playing out that shaft fantasy. Yeah, 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 he's, he's a bad motherfucker. Yeah. So there it is. So there it is. <laughs> the Samuel L. Jackson, the bad motherfucker. So, <laughs> and on that note, everyone, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.